So, hey friends, um, today's a, an interview episode and one I've been looking forward to a lot. Um, I'm here with Jeff Slate, who is an ASCAP award-winning singer-songwriter from New York City, has fronted several bands, including the 80s mod punk band The Mindless Thinkers, which is a great name, by the way, um, has worked with musicians such as Earl Slick and Carlos Alomar, has opened for Sheryl Crow, toured and lived in Europe, and has released numerous albums, um, both as part of different bands and as a solo artist. He's also a prolific journalist, writing for publications such as Rolling Stone, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, and Esquire, and has interviewed or written about artists as varied as Bob Dylan, Bob Geldof, David Bowie, Willie Nelson, and of course, Tom Petty. Jeff's a lifelong fan of music and of musicians, and is a huge admirer of Tom's work, which is why I'm most delighted to have him on the show. Thank you so much for joining me, Jeff. How are you? I now have to live up to that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will, I'm, I'm already going to take a left turn. The Mindless Thinkers was, I was in a band in my first band, which became The Mindless Thinkers in about 83, 84 and we went to see Checkered Past, and Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols was the guitar player. I'd already seen him one time with the professionals at that point, but never with the Pistols. And uh, he was drunk, and you know, we met him and asked him for a name because we had a terrible name, which I won't disclose. <laughs> and we needed a good name, and we went backstage after the show, and he and Nigel Olson from Blondie, I think it was, maybe Klemberg, said you you are you guys are the mindless thinkers and wow. i just thought it's it's a great it's i'm still friends with jonesy to this day which is which is great and amazing and weird but um uh and he has no i mean obviously it was a, a low point in his life but uh he has no recollection of that but he will take credit for the name it's a pretty fucking good punk name. it's a great name it really is right you know yeah. i love it and a good backstory yeah. too right we're coming we're coming up on our 40th anniversary and we're going to release the album and you know a couple of singles and a couple of singles that never got released because we broke up so there's there's actually mindless thinkers content coming in 2024 if oh, you can wait man, that, I know, must, is that crazy must, that must be a lot of fun to go back and look at that stuff again hey through no, a lens it's of not. A lens. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not it's not at all it's like i you know people we did one reunion show so we never played together after about 85 or 6 we did one reunion show when the clash were inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame cbgb's threw a big bash for them and we headlined that and reunited played some clash stuff played our own stuff and you know i've had this i'll name drop i've had this conversation many times with paul weller who i'm sure you're you're aware of absolutely um who who doesn't really know tom's work i will say this i, I once asked him because i'm friends with benmont you know something about benmont he's like uh, who's that and I'm like, oh, my God, how do you not know who Benmon is? But anyway, so I schooled him. But anyway, um, and we talked about, like, having to try to sing the songs you wrote when you were, like, 16, 17, 18 years old. His songs, of course, changed the world. <clears throat> Mine were just bad. But, you know, it, it's, you still have to find your way in. And that's why he doesn't do it. And I, I totally get it. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, Eaton Rifles and Tube Station. Well, maybe not Tube but going underground and, you know, those, those things, they're evergreen, but I get why he doesn't want to play them. Yeah. You know. So I wanted to, to, I wanted to open, I wanted to read the opening paragraph back to you of the article that you wrote for Esquire after Tom had passed away. I think it's a really good jumping off point to talk about some of this stuff. So you said, sure. Tom Petty, Tom Petty never felt above us. The hit records and sold out tours never stopped. And he counted Bob Dylan, George Harrison, Johnny Cash, and so many more legends among his friends. Yet he still felt down to earth. 
It was as though he was our representative among those storied artists, like a fan had snuck in and grabbed the last seat at the table with the big boys. And now he's gone. And so that jumping off point is those four words must have been really heavy to write. So I wanted to ask you about the process of having to put that article together about an artist that you loved and what sort of, what did that bring up as you were writing that article? Well, you know, a lot of times you'll have obituaries already written, you know, for artists that you know are, you know, you just, you just do. And then you yeah. sort of edit them for the moment. That was not one I, I had. Um, I started getting text messages from a couple of the band members at, at some, at some point, there's my dog, uh, at some point in the afternoon, um, um, uh, you know, that there was a, you know, there, there was something going on Yeah, that they were gathering at the hospital, that it was, you know, and, you know, part of me was just a friend and part of me was a journalist like this is a really big story and i need to be prepared for this yeah so i i said to one of the guys look i'm i'm gonna need to let because the news was had sort of broken i think it broke that he died but then he wasn't dead you know that was sort of the the initial news report and so i contacted my editor at esquire and i said you know look i i I don't know what you have in mind but i really want to write this you know this is this is you know this is got me written all over yeah and and he was like you know we wouldn't have anybody else do it so um so i had about an hour and right maybe an hour and a half but you know in the meantime i was getting messages from a couple of the guys and and it was you know it's pretty grim and i had to not report anything that was told to me as a friend or in confidence. Although they were details I'm sure everybody would would have wanted to know at the time that everybody was there, that they were, you know, that there were, you know, just things happening. Um and so I I just sat down and the article that you read the introduction to is exactly what came out. I mean, it just sort of came out in almost one pass, which never happens. It's like a great song or a great, you know, um, and, you know, little little editing here and there for accuracy, some things, you know, Bob Dylan's um, comment came in and, and it was funny because his manager contacted me because whoever quoted it first, I think Rolling Stone got it wrong. Right. And he was very upset that he got it wrong. So you know, he's like, please get it right. Bob wants it to be right. I'm like, okay. And, um, and it went up and, and, and then at some point that evening, I went back and read it. Yeah. Because I was like, what the fuck just happened? You know, and, and all the yeah. news was breaking and it was really, it was awful. And, and I, I read it as if it, I hadn't, written it you know i read it as a fan reading it i think and i was like oh my god that that is that is exactly the piece that is exactly what i would have wanted to say oh my god i said it you know and and i will tell you the greatest many people have pointed to that piece in the years since tom passed 
you know, people who were close to him, people who didn't know him at all, you know, who ju were just fans, even like casual fans, like really casual fans. Like, yeah. I've got the greatest hits and I'm like, okay. Um, there was something about that piece, but I'll, I'll tell you, I think it was the next day, might've been two days, but I'm pretty sure it was the next day. I got a, a text message from his manager, Tony Dimitriotis at the yep. time, thanking me, you know, for like, right, I'm going to get emotional, but writing such a great piece that really captured who Tom was and not betraying any of the things that I had seen or was privy to when he was around and yeah. that yeah. I was lucky enough to be a fly on the wall for when I didn't have my journalist hat on, you know? Uh, he may not have said that then. He might have said that to me later when I saw him. But anyway, it, the gist was, thank you. And I, you know, it made it very real, you know, because here's yeah. a guy who's clearly grieving and also has to deal with the monumental task of dealing with the aftermath of it, not just, you know, burying Tom and dealing with that, but the, the business of Tom Petty. Of course. Uh, and he took, you know, a minute out to write to me. And I just thought, first of all, class act. And that's always my experience with Tom and everybody around him. But um, it, it really meant a lot. I mean, it really meant a lot. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure I've told that story before. I hope he isn't upset that I said he wrote to me. You know, I, I, try, I try to be judicious in the things that I share about my, my relationships within the band. But, um, you know, there have been times when people share it or people write to me or people like you ask me about it. And, you know, it's, it's always amazing to me that I was able to do justice to somebody who had been so important in my life for so long. Yeah. Because a lot of times, you know, there were 2016, 17, 15, 16, 17, 18, there were, all, I wrote a lot of obituaries, like yeah, a lot of obituaries, Yeah, way too many. And, and some of them I'm very, very proud of. And some of them I go back to and I'm like, yeah, that wasn't great. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. people, people like them. They meet, they're meaningful to people. Um, I did one about Prince that I'm, I'm pretty proud oh. of. Merle Haggard. There were a few others that I was really you know, that meant a lot, but there were just as many, Little Richard and, and Chuck Berry were two, two that I did one for Chuck's 90th and then a couple months later when he died. Those are all super meaningful to me, but a lot of them, you know, they, they were assignments and they were, you know, they, I said what I had to say and they were meaningful to me, but I didn't capture, you know, what I really feel like is the essence of the person that I was so lucky to cross paths with a couple of times and that's i think when we were all grieving in that moment collectively people just wanted a little piece of tom yes and i yes. think that article even now has just a little bit of him because i got to you know hang out with the guy and yeah. and you know and watch him at, at close range too a bunch of times um and and so I, you know, so thanks for bringing that up. And you upset me now, and I, I'm done. No, <laughs> no, I, I I mean that sincerely. It's, it's very emotional to think back on that day and that piece. And it, it absolutely know, isn't. I, I was going to say because that was. It, it's funny because when you'd reached out to me, um, you know, to, to talk about whether to jump on the podcast and whatnot, I'd read that. I went back and did some research, obviously, and looked, and I found that article, and I was like, that's the article that I read. 
That is the first article that I read once we found out and once we knew for sure. And it was, it was the same kind thing. of everywhere. That piece was kind of yeah, everywhere. But it's, and I think the reason for that is because it's obviously a good piece of journalism in the it captures everything you need to say about the passing of a beloved artist. But as you say, it's got, and now that you said that it, you wrote it sort of almost in, in one pass, it has that sort of very personal feel where you're telling someone about this person who's died rather than it being, and then they did this on this day, and then they did this on this day. It's got that real I hate of, those. I don't yeah. feel like, and, I, and I've, I've lobbied many times when I've had to do these things, you know, especially when they're artists that I've crossed paths with that the whoever I'm writing it for allows me to do that. Because I think, you know, you can get, an, you can get a good obituary, you know, the, the New York Times or the LA Times or, you know, wherever, the Guardian, whatever, they're going to they're gonna give you the facts of the yeah. person's life. And everybody wants to re- be reminded of those facts, but I think that's not what we're looking for when it's somebody who, you know, we, we did feel like we knew this guy, Yeah. you know? I mean, he did let us in, in a way that is um, unique, certainly among his peers. Very uncommon, yeah, for sure. Well, let's use that then as a as sort of a, a gateway into then, talk about how did you come across Tom Petty's music? Do you remember your first exposure to it? Do you remember sort of the first time you thought, wait a minute, this guy is not just the next rock and roller. This guy's something a bit different. I do. Um, it was funny because I, I, so I was born in 67. So 76, 77, when the first couple of records came out, I was a little too young, but I had a friend who had a huge family and older brothers. And one of the older brothers had the first two records. And I remember you know, we snuck him out when he was out on Friday night, we were playing them. And, you know, you have to remember at that time, AM radio was like, first of all, you could hear a lot of different styles on AM radio. And it was just, you know, so predominant, preeminent in in America at that time that, you know, you would hear Tom Petty and Fleetwood Mac, and you would also hear, and the Knack, and you know whoever else was out at the time, but you would also hear like Debbie Boone and Elvis and Donna Summer, and you know Elton John. Everybody was on the radio all together. Yeah. So those first two records, part of it's the production. They're they're you know they're a little rough and ready, but part of it is to. You know, they just felt like records of the time. You know, American Girl stood out. Mm -hmm. Breakdown stood out. Uh, Listen to Her Heart stood out. I remember those. So I remember not long after that, um, Dan the Torpedoes came out. And that was like, whoa, there's something completely (laughs) else going on here. Because most albums around that time were one or two singles. and eight or nine b-sides basically and this was an album that even the stuff that you know like louisiana rain or whatever that certainly wasn't a single was like really interesting yes and it sounded amazing you know the playing was great his voice is so um expressive and unique i mean nobody else sounds like tom petty and i think that was by that time he had he and the band had all found their roles within Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, you know, so, but the songs, you know, ultimately, you know, it wasn't just 
you know, like I said, American Girl, Breakdown, Listen to Her Heart. Well, you know, my band plays those songs still to this day. They're great songs. But, you know, Damn the Torpedoes was like a whole other level of songwriting and production and, and musicianship. Um, and then, and then, you know, and then not too long after that, and he was everywhere too. Yes. You know, you got to remember, it was like Rolling Stone and Circus and Cream and Hit Parader. And <laughs> he was really everywhere. He was the guy who was, and he was a really, you know, he looked different yeah. than everybody yeah. else, you know? And then when, when Hard Promises came out, which obviously, uh, and Stop Dragon was on the radio with Stevie Nicks and The Insider, you know, it was like, you know, he had, he had catapulted into this world of stardom all of a sudden. Yeah. He was on, you know, the, the Friday night video shows, and this is pre-MTV, and, you know, the in-concert shows. I mean, he was sort of everywhere. Right. And I remember there was an article about him in, like, my local newspaper, you know, not in Rolling Stone or not in, but just in a, the, like, a, something that, you know, the guy had gone to see Tom Petty or interview Tom Petty. I don't remember exactly, but it was like, whoa, that's, that's a whole other level of coverage yeah. in the pre-internet day that really, you know, so it, so it was this sort of slow burn. And then I didn't get to see him. Um, you know, I, I did see around that same time, I got to see the Kinks and the Who and the Clash a bunch of times. And, you know, all of those things, but particularly the class changed my life. But, uh, you know, a lot of those were because I had older bro- uh, an older brother and an older sister who would take me to yep. these shows. Yep. Tom Petty was not on their radar. You know, I mean, the, the Kinks and the Who were certainly on their radar, the Stones, too. Um, but the and the Clash, because they shut down Times Square, my sister lived in Times Square and she was like, the fuck's going on here do you know these guys we should go i'm like yes we should go anyway um because i was a young guy but i didn't get to see tom until the summer of 86 with um with bob dylan at madison square garden and it was funny because it was in the summertime i had tried to get tickets or i just missed out getting tickets back in the day when we had to like wait out you know in front of Ticketmaster at tower records actually here in new york and get um get tickets i didn't get tickets i was in the middle of finals or something so i had to scalp tickets and then because it was in the middle of the summer and i was at nyu at the time nobody was around and nobody wanted to go it was the the weirdest thing because bob was in a place where you know i think he was seen as a little bit done maybe yeah at that point and he'd had uneven shows for a number of years at that point. So people were a little like, and certainly young people my age were, you know, I was 19, were, were not super into him. And I have to say, you know, people will take issue with this, but Tom was kind of seen similarly, you know, right. that it, he wasn't, you know, he had long after dark had certainly made an impact with MTV, but this was before he went on the sort of, you know, rocket ride that became the next five years with the Wilburys and full moon fever and all that yep. you know this was this was sort of the calm before the storm and the band was in a rough place too we all know now so so it was weird i, I could not get anybody to go <laughs> and so i i scalped the ticket and um obviously the guy who i scalped it to out in front 
had to sit with me. <laughs> so, you know, we met up again inside. He turned out to be this really interesting dude. He was like a Vietnam vet. He'd seen Dylan. He'd seen Dylan with the band at Madison Square Garden. So he was telling me about that. He didn't really know Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And when they came out, he was really into it. And we were like, you know, blown away. Bob did a set all by himself. Whatever people tell you, it was fucking amazing. And Tom and the Heartbreakers did a set pretty long that I remember they did like a 15 minute version of breakdown. It's ridiculous. But anyway, they, <laughs> and, and this guy who didn't know anything about them was like an instant fan. This to him, this was like the essence of rock and roll yeah. that you, that you could subordinate yourself to the star and just be this great band. But then when your time came to elevate things to the point that you would impress this guy who'd never heard any of those songs or claim not to, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they didn't do, it was funny. They, they did break down, but I don't remember them doing like hits, you know, I think they did. And I think I said this to somebody the other day, I think Stan sang a song. I think they did one of like nervous reaction or one of, you know, it was a cover. Weird. Yeah, it was or a a... Weird, I could be wrong. The train spotters out there will kind of be like, Oh no, <laughs> this is the set list from that night. I'm like, I'm doing this from memory. So, um, <laughs> And so that was the first time I had seen them. And, and then after that, I didn't miss them very much. I did not go to the Southern Accents tour. I was a little put off by the Confederate flag drama. Yeah. Uh, even then. And, but then, um, you know, into the Great Wide Open tour. I saw them a couple of times then, many times over the years. And then, you know, later on, I got to know Tom and everybody and, and you know, got to you know, stand at the soundboard and stand on the stage and all those things that are your dream when you're, you know, a fan as a kid, of course, um, which I'm sure we'll get into. But that was sort of the gateway. The gateway drug was like many people, the older brother who had the first couple of records. We, you know, squirreled them away and listened to them, probably ruined them, scratched them up. Um, and they were, you know, they were good. But they, I, rem I remember this really vividly. Like, I wasn't like, oh, my God, this guy's the next you know next yeah. rock and roll star it was damn the torpedoes where it was like the minute you put it down on side one it transported you in a way that was unlike really anything else that year there were other great records that year but this was like it had so much going for it so yeah. you know can't really understate how great that record was oh and we so i went through um that exact point with there were actually a lot of really good albums released in 81 and huge huge albums well that was 79 right so 81 uh, sorry was 81 sorry i'm sorry yeah 79 not, not 81 79 yeah and so when you look back and you think that damn the torpedoes actually stands up against all of them still it's like yeah i know there's some quality there and i was the wall in london calling and it was, it was exactly really, yeah 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 it was some huge huge albums and a good time for music too right i think it was it was when rock and roll was starting to pick up again and, and diversify a little bit so it wasn't all just sounding the same like you did have a bit of diversity coming in now and we just so we're just um, going through and, and, and the great th I will say this which is really important you know certainly the wall and tusk were were big albums that we can appreciate after the fact as being certainly tusk being really special and unique but you know at the time those were not I mean they, you know they just didn't move me but but yes. London Calling and Damn the Torpedoes really, you know, changed my life, both of them in so many ways. But I will say it was it was the last moment where there were 
you know, it was four or five guys standing in a room playing <laughs> instruments, yeah. you know, just getting the best take they could possibly get with a really great producer so that, you know, within just a couple of years, we were in synthesizer land and drum yes. machine land. And that's a whole, and Tom, you know, certainly, you know, the great thing about his records is they stand up. They don't sound super dated because it was also guys playing instruments around those machines. Yeah. But everybody fell into that hole. I mean, you know, all the 60s guys fell into the, the synthesizer hole and, and made some terrible, terrible <laughs> records. And, you know, it's not to say the songs weren't there, but I remember when Keith Richards put out Talk is Cheap. It was like, oh, my God, thank God somebody put out a record with people playing <laughs> instruments for a change. And that was like 10 years later. So um, anyway, go ahead. I, no, I'm, no, it's, no, it's so funny. I, I was just thinking back, like you, you, a couple of things that I pick up on. One thing is you've said a couple of times now, and I totally agree. And I get this is one of my hobby horses. People forget how great a band the Heartbreakers were. I mean, everyone knows that Tom Petty is one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Um, but people forget how tight of a band they are. And when you see them go play with Dylan, you cannot back Bob Dylan unless you've got really serious chops and be able to nimble and change on the fly because he's going to go in left direction, right. He's going to change, right? He's going to change the set list on, on a whim. So to be able to respond to and that, the key, you've got to I mean, ben, ben yeah. Mont, both Ben Mont and Mike. So I, I wrote a piece for the Bob Dylan Center. They're putting out a book for people who visit the Dylan Center out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I, I chose to write about the Heartbreakers tour. Sweet. And, and Band of the Hand because I got to see Bob's original lyrics for Band of the Hand, which is a song they cut when they were in Australia that Tom produced. And, um, you know, they both talk about it as this really mind-blowing experience. I mean, you know, Ben Mont is a huge, huge Bob Dylan fan and doesn't hide that and doesn't hide it around Bob. But, you know, he was sort of the MD because he would, he would always have to hold it together. If Bob yeah. said... I want to do, you know, I don't know, you know, to, to Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll in E flat. Everybody would look at Ben Mont and be like, and he'd be like, okay, we're going to do this now. Um, oh, you know, nice. there's very few bands that can pull that off. And, and I will say this, I'm a, I'm a, a rock hall voter. And I think it's a shame that the E Street Band, who, and I'm going to piss people off and this will make you headlines. <laughs> I think they're a far inferior band. To the heartbreakers and they are in the rock and roll hall of fame as a band yes the e street band which is ridiculous they're not they're first of all they're not a band i mean they're just bruce springsteen's backing band whereas the heartbreakers have backed up like you said johnny cash and and bob dylan and all these other people as a band yes I mean, they elevated yep. that that unchained record beyond belief for johnny cash it's a great it's probably it was Tom's favorite Heartbreakers record, you know, so that's how great it was. Um, so for them not to be in there as a band also, a separate entity, if you're going to put in a band like the E Street Band, which is a novelty at best to have them in as a band. No, I mean, seriously, no, they no, are, they totally are not, nobody goes to see the E Street Band. They go to see Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. No disrespect to those players, you know, but... And, and there's not one of them in that band, except maybe Roy Vuitton, who can hold a candle to the players in, in the Heartbreakers. I mean, the Heartbreakers, every single one of them has something really, really special. And even, you know, the, re, you know, the replacements or the additions, you get into Ferroni or, or Ron and Howie and back to Ron and, and Scotty Thurston. 
everybody who was in that orbit was just spectacular at yes. what they needed to do. And again, almost like, you know, if you go back to someone like Zeppelin or Rush, they're not only brilliant players individually, but there's just, they've got that little bit of magic where they fit. You know, they're exactly, yeah. they're exactly the right well, people in the right were, and, and I think that's what's remarkable about it. I've, I've talked to Ron in particular about this. Um, you know, how do they fucking find each other? I mean, that's just <laughs> the, 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 the sort of existential question of how these guys <laughs> just sort of came together and stayed together, that it stuck. Well, so you, know. you do get that sense of sort of, it's us against them. And some of it was sort of, you know, some of it's just that young person's kind of the life's got me down and we'd come from nothing. But some of it was real, like the record company's trying to put the price up or, you know, they've, they've sold your catalog and now you're on this different label that we didn't agree to. So that sort of, I think that early strife probably brought them together a little bit you know and then there's just that general sort of sense of well we like each other yeah, musically but I think, and respect each other i think other, so the difficulty is then it eventually becomes in any band us against us <laughs> and of course, yeah. and you know anybody who's been on the road for any length of time <laughs> knows that even people who get along really well when you're in a bus together a van together or you know flying together or whatever you hate the people you're traveling with after, you know, uh, of course. Not, it doesn't even take, it doesn't even take that long. You know, <laughs> I've done relatively short tours and wanted it to be over. So, um, but they kept it together and that's, that's amazing. When I also think that that speaks a lot to another thing that I think is sometimes underappreciated with Tom and the, and the boys is that professionalism. You know, we've got, we've got to be, we've got to be on our game for the fans. So even if we're, even if you're the last person I want to look at tonight, I still got to work with you. I still got to be able to get through. I might not talk to you for the rest of the tour, but we've got to do that because that's our, that's our job. That's what we well, do for our I th- fans. And right? I think that really speaks to the fact that all of them individually, if you, you, the one thing I've noticed all of them love talking about is the music they love. Yes. You know, I mean, you know, so the elephant in the room is that I did, get to meet Tom a couple of times and just sort of be around him a couple of times. But the one time I had like a really long conversation with him, I just figured, Hey, this is the last time I'm going to, you know, we talked for a while and it was really nice and, you know, it was very relaxed. It wasn't, it wasn't a public setting. It was very chilled out. It was in a recording studio. Okay. And, um, and I thought, okay, well, we've been talking for a while, like 20 minutes. It's a pretty long time. That's nice, yeah. Th- this is probably the last time I'm ever going to talk to him. I'm just going to say it. So it's Bob Dylan really like, you know, and, <laughs> right? And then, I, and then I subsequently asked about George. I asked about Roy Orbison, you know. Yeah. And the funny thing was, you know, Bob, he was a little guarded because Bob's still alive. George was, I want to say, yeah, George, George was dead at the time. So it was, um, you know, and not that long. It was fairly recent, so it was, you know, he was a little circumspect. Mm-hmm. But Roy, he just became, he just lit up about Roy. Yeah. Um, because well, he, he's a fan. But he was the hero. Know? I mean, Orbison was the one, right? He was the hero of all the guys in the room. They'd just sit around and after they finished recording with the Wilburys, now tell, tell yeah. us about Elvis. Tell us about hanging out with Elvis. You know, like little kids, right. like us, right. like fans. Right, right. And I think that's that's the thing he never lost is when when the stuff we talked about when he was able to drop his persona yes, and just yeah. be a fan, it was really genuine. And I look, you know, I still, you know, I talk to Ben Monk really regularly. 
and we talk about the music we're listening to and the stuff yeah. that turns on and the people we like. And a lot of times it's, you know, it's not even recent artists typically. Um, and, you know, I, I had, a, I haven't talked to Mike in a while, but I bought some, I bought some road cases from Mike Gamble <laughs> a couple of years ago and we were on the phone and he had just played with the reunited birds with Marty Stewart. It was McGuinn and Hillman and whatever. Yeah. And, you know, you know, I know those guys. He knows those guys. Obviously a lot better than me. But um, and we were gossiping, you know, like <laughs> as two fans who, you know, have had a little bit of window into these people's lives. We were just gossiping the way fans do about why can't they get yeah. together with David? And, but you know, this whole thing. Right. Why can't they bury the hatchet? Why did, you know, and, and and because we both have a little bit of inside knowledge, too. It's like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. totally true. And, you know, it's, it's really funny. But. But that just goes to show how deep the love of all those artists is. It's like he knows the guitars they used and yep. the studios they used and the mics they used. And, the you know, they're nerds just like yes. we are yeah. about those things. But I think that's that's the thing with... It's beautiful. It's, it's the thing with musicians generally or too, right? Like I don't know any of my musician friends. What we want to do is we want to sit around, crack a beer and just talk about music just endlessly and we can have the same conversation 15 times but we just love having that conversation i think that you know you think about mike campbell who not only was in i always think about this okay he's, he's played with johnny cash and he's played with bob dylan he's played with all these artists and he wrote for don henley and he did all the da, da, da. oh and he was in the fucking heartbreakers like you forget that no no that's as important or more important to mike campbell as anything else so yeah. when you're talking about sort of the relationships that you've built up with the heartbreakers how did that kind of start was that just through writing or was that through sort of being around the scene or yeah I, it's hmm good question um i got to know i got to know benmont first okay. i was we were introduced by a mutual friend musician and um you know we just hit it off yeah. we, we have we like a lot of the same stuff um we love bob um you know, we could talk for hours about Bob Dylan. I mean, just, you know, just <laughs> Bob Dylan. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it was, it's funny, too. It's like I, we were all at that event where Tom was and there was no seat next to Tom. Okay. And no, nobody in the band wanted to sit next to Tom. You don't want to sit next to the boss if you're like, <laughs> you know. So they were all like, I remember Ron like, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I I sat next to Tom for that. And I think part of it was like, if this guy can tolerate, cause it was like an hour and a half we were sitting there. Um, it was a little bit trial by fire. Like you're okay. If you can keep your shit together yeah. and also, you know, have a normal conversation with this guy who's clearly like the biggest presence in the room. Yes. And, and I will say Dr. John was there too. So there were a lot of, there was a lot going on and I know it's crazy. Wow. It's a crazy crazy night um and so i think you know people suss you out there they're like oh this guy's yep. okay you know and i had already met ben and we had struck up a relationship um and then you know things just sort of happened when they'd come to town i'd go and hang out and um you know, Ben and I would usually spend the afternoon together and then we'd go up to the garden or wherever they were playing and hang out. I got to know all the crew and I got to know all the, 
you know, the crew is really the key. You know, I got to know Bob Scoville really, really well, who okay. did front of house for them for many, many years. Um, and Greg Looper, the late Greg Looper, who was one of the greatest guys in the world. And I mean, like when we did our Tom Petty tribute in L.A. Uh, for Music Cares a couple of years ago before the pandemic, I had Greg Looper do monitors and I had Bob Scoville do front of house. Wow. You know, we had Ron on bass and Ferroni on drums and yep. Jim Keltner. Yeah. And it was like Ben couldn't do it and and Mike didn't want to do it. And but when I told him we got Earl Slick, who's you know my compadre in a lot of musical things, he was really excited because it wasn't somebody who was just gonna come in and cop his parts. He was okay, gonna do his right. own thing. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. he wasn't gonna play the Mike Campbell parts, he was gonna like play the guitar. So um, but you know, it was really important to me to have people who were part of tom's world to be part of that event um because those by that time those are guys i'd known for almost 20 years it's weird right. to think that, you know um and and like you know when they come through town with other things chinners come to my shows and when i bought mike's road case i had to go up to the garden i had to roll wheel a road case down <laughs> sixth avenue it's crazy it's like, it's like the things that have happened as, as being part of that world that are really strange and, and beautiful yeah um because i because every single person in and around tom's orbit were just first class people from like you know management and the people in the office all the way down to yeah. every single person on the crew if you if if you had been sort of tapped as this guy's okay, there wasn't one person who ever gave you attitude, who ever asked you why you were there, whoever you know. If if you were if you had a right, if if you know it had been like okay, you were part of the family. Yeah. And yeah. once they knew your face, you were always part of the family. People people who had no right remembering my name yeah. would remember my name. Which just blows my fucking mind. But that like, comes you know, that, that comes from the top, though, right? That's where that that, that example is set at the top. That and it has to, and it trickles absolutely. down, and then and everything else gets weeded out. You know, absolutely. and I love that you, you sort of. I, I always love it when I'm talking to people who have this connection to the band, and you throw out little things like, "Oh yeah, me and Ben would hang out in the afternoon." Then we just walk over to Madison Square Garden as if that's <laughs> just something that you know. <laughs> but right to ask oh. you is is Ben Mon as intense as he sometimes seems? And it's because he yeah. always seems like he's very. He's very in the moment all the time. Like he's just living every single second as hard as he can. I love that about him. You know, he's, he's, he's very intense. It's what's, it's what's really special and beautiful about him. Um, he cares really, really passionately yeah. about the music he makes. He doesn't take any of that for granted. He doesn't take, I mean, this is a guy who still to this day practices all the fucking time. Every, I feel bad. <laughs> Because I don't, I go, you know, between shows or tours or whatever, I can go like a really long time without picking up a guitar. He plays piano every day. I'm like, stop that. You're making us all feel bad. Yeah. I mean, he's really, he's really intense about it. He's making a record and we talk about it and he's still working on the, the running order and the mixes and the mastering. And the, it's like, oh my God, yeah. you know, let's, you know, it's, and part of that is the artistic temperament. We don't want to let things go. But he he is exactly that. But that's also what makes him so unique and special. You know, course, I mean, he's you know, they they all filled a role in in that band. And, I, you know, I think that's part of why. You know, he's a really. 
he's probably the sweetest of the guys. Right. You know, he's a curmudgeon, like, you know, many musicians are. But he also has this sweetness about him that, I mean, you know, we still to this day, we'll talk about things and he'll, Tom will come up and he gets really quiet and he get, he's re, he's still really, really affected by that loss. And I'm not betraying anything by telling yep. you that. I think he wears that on his sleeve. You know, he, he really feels that loss. You have to remember, this is a guy he knew from the time he was like 13. Yes. You know, they, they were, he was a kid. Yeah. And, you know, um, and a guy, and a, guy know, and, a, and a guy he looked up to too, right? I mean, you can be a bandmate, and you can you can still. I look up to my friends, right? You can be friends and close to someone, and still have a lot of admiration for them, and that definitely comes across when any of them. You can you can be in a top. band and be angry at the guy as a person or whatever, but there's no denying, and he has said this to me when Tom would bring in songs. You know, I, I remember when we were talking about the Wildflowers documentary. He he was trying to remember a scene in the film. You know, like. Yeah, how it happened in real life, and you know he said you know Tom would bring in these songs, and you don't always remember the details of every single one because there were so many. But he said every time it was like Christmas as as a as a you know the guy who was able to write the parts to hopefully elevate those songs that were already perfect, you know, special, you know, just as little demos, you know. He's that you know that that is like you know that's the thing that any musician would die for to be able to have of that course. seat at the table. Of course. So, yeah, and be, and be involved as as an equal too, because I think that's the other thing that, that Tom obviously Tom had creative control and he was the band leader and he was the face of the organization. But you watch the Wildflowers documentary or you watch Running Down a Dream or you sort of listen to the interviews with the bands. It again going back to it, it was a band so. Benmont, like, what do you think? What do we need here? What do we need? I'll play that. Oh, yeah, that's okay. That's good. Or, you know, and, but it was, well, that, so it was, it was remember, a collaborative you process. You got to remember right? they, tr- they trusted each other. Yes, of course. You yeah, know, which which you have to at that level. Yeah. I mean, and I think that was, that's probably the reason, you know, you can, you can talk about the disintegration of the relationship between Stan and Tom, which is tragic because Stan yeah. was the drummer. I mean, he was the heart. And I played with Brony. Steve's a great friend of mine. And I love Steve to bits, but for me as an OG fan, Stan is the drummer. And, and I think you can be on tour with somebody and hate their guts. And when the tour is over, never want to see them again, but you will, because it's for the, for the band, for the greater good. I think ultimately if that trust breaks down, you know, that sort of, indescribable thing that you know sort of otherworldly thing if that breaks down then then it's almost impossible to get that back yeah for sure and they, and they had it in spades and like you said i mean it was a little bit of a little bit of serendipity a little bit of yeah. um you know common sense and yeah. you know tom walking into that room where ben mont's got people over recording thinking wait a minute these guys sound pretty good i could i could definitely latch onto this you know it's just a little bit of time and a little bit of luck but i think as we said like that sort of that desire to stay together and get through it's like a marriage right i mean i've been married for 25 years next year and i've had some we had some days where yeah i'm like i'm gonna go somewhere else because i don't need to be here right a now. really long right time. it's um, a long time so. i'm suspicious of you <laughs> <laughs> again that it comes back somewhat to what's on about earlier about professionalism and i know that tom every every band every young guy starts a band you're at least one eye on thinking well 
might get me laid here and there. But Tom and Mike and Ben Mont, and especially as you're talking about Ben Mont, the way how, how seriously he takes music, that's definitely secondary. The music's got to be right first. So, you know, they had that rule, no girls on the bus early on, which, you know, Kiss sure shit wouldn't have had that rule. Van Halen wouldn't have had that rule. The Stones certainly would, <laughs> you know what I mean? But that sort of that dedication to, you know, yes, we're going to go and have fun, but, you know, and they said they never played drunk. Obviously, there's some issues around Southern accents and that kind of time, but they didn't play that. They take that seriously. This is our time to be serious. When we're not on stage, that's when we can party. But this has to be right, and we have to take this seriously. And I, I just again, that's something that, as a nerd and as sort of a, not a square, but as someone who's very process oriented, I like that, and I find that endearing, and I find that rock and roll. That's to me, that's rock and roll. It's like, yeah, go out there and play. That's what it's supposed to be about the music. Well, I, I think one of the things that people don't don't talk about all that much is. It, it's a, it's a lot of hard work. I mean, I yeah. think it was Dizzy Gillespie who said, it's not the hour and a half you're on stage. It's the 22 and a half. You're yeah. doing everything else. You're traveling and you're dealing with the tickets, people and the hall and the sound check and the travel and the shitty food. And the, it's yeah. all that. That's yeah. what it's about. Um, the, the 90 minutes is the joy, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I think you're right. I think it's, it's about, yeah. I mean, they, they were always serious about doing the best job they could possibly do. And you can see when they slipped a little bit, the quality control slipped a little bit or 100%. the, the relationships within the band slipped a little bit or, you know, whatever. So, yeah. yeah. Some of my favorite aphorisms is, you know, take what you do seriously, never take yourself seriously. And I think that's a fairly, yeah. if you can get that balance, that's a good life. And again, Tom's the epitome of that, right? I think he always had that. He always, he always struck me as, and Benmont too, apart from being very intense, they all seem like they've got a good sense of humor. Like they like, yeah. to, they like to laugh, you know, and yeah. not everyone does, you know? Yeah. So I think I like that. So, you know what we should do? I wanted to talk to you quickly because and it was something that came up earlier. Um, and it's something that, again, it's another sort of be in my bonnet that I always have, that I think that Tom Petty is possibly one of, if not one of, maybe the most underrated vocalists, rock and roll vocalists of all time. Because, again, everyone knows he's a great songwriter, brilliant rhythm guitarist, good bass, solid bass player, solid drummer. Great, yeah. But as a singer, I mean, if you listen to songs like Refugee, and then you listen to something like A Woman in Love, It's Not Me, from Hard Promises, and then you listen to US 41, and then you mm-hmm. listen to, this is, it's not the same thing. It almost feels like it's not the same guy because he had that ability to bend his voice to, into the shape of whatever song he was working on. It's absolutely amazing. It blows my mind every time I listen to those records. I, I think, you know, because he wrote characters, yeah. people, people don't think of him in the same breath as like Bowie, who was always, you know, who wrote from the perspective of characters because he didn't, really he wasn't really comfortable with being i mean he took on a name rather than yep. be david jones right yeah i think tom was similar and i think he inhabited those characters and and I'll, look george harrison said many times in many interviews that the thing that first drew him to tom was his voice right you know the storytelling yeah and he would know a good voice <laughs> <laughs> he was you, around you a few, you know, <laughs> saw a few good singers in his day. Um, and, and I think, you know, you got, you got to remember too, he, he was in the Wilburys. Those are all guys who, whether you like, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a real advocate of Bob Dylan's voice. George is a great singer. Roy is just, you know, the epitome. Yeah. Um, 
and Jeff Lynn has just a beautiful voice and a beautiful range. All of them though, have so much emotion and there's so much storytelling in their voices. Yeah. I think that's what elevates. It's like, you can have a great song. It can be a Bob Dylan song for that matter. But if you get, if you put it in the hands of one of those guys, it's just, you know, I remember Tom, Tom did tell me this story when I asked him about Roy. He said they were sitting on the couch in the studio and Roy was just rehearsing his part because they, George would have them all do it and yep. kind of audition them to be there. <laughs> and he was just in his, this little quiet, like not his full voice, but he's like, you know, just kind of singing the quiet. And he was like, I can't compete with that. <laughs> right. You know, but that's not true either. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, he yeah. couldn't he couldn't do what Roy did, but he did what he did. And uh, and and what he did was no less special or unique. It's also important to note, though, that Orbison couldn't do what Petty did. He couldn't sing some of the songs that Tom Petty sang the way he sang them because they're totally different. Totally different. And yeah. most people can't. And, you know, in Paul Zolo's book, he, he said I would take he, issue with that. I think Roy could. He just didn't well, choose to. Well, maybe. But I mean, he in, had like, a, he had a he had a very distinct brand. Yeah, but intonation and phrasing is very important. Same as Tremolo with the the guitarist, right? Stevie Ray Vaughan sounds like Stevie Ray Vaughan because he bends the strings a certain way and no one else does it that way. Roy Orbison sounds like Roy Orbison because he's got, that's how he sings and it's it's your trademark, it's your fingerprint, right? As an artist is the way you sound. And of course, when you bring all those pieces in, in the Wilburys, like, my God, I mean, and, and I was thinking back now, before I knew who Tom Petty was really, I was thought, well, you got... Jeff Lynn, who I knew because I'm English and I know ELO, obviously. Roy Orbison, you've got, you know, the guy from the Beatles, that, that little fellow from the Beatles, and you've got, um, oh, Bob Dylan. Well, who's Tom, who's Tom Petty broke into this group? That was when I sort of first started listening. Like, that's kind of weird that they'd let this this junior member in. But then when you dig in, it's like, no, they all admired him just as much. You know, when, when or when, um, what was it, when Dylan leans over to Tom and says, when George Harrison just leaves the room and says, you know, he was in the Beatles. So that sort of admiration <laughs> just goes across all lines, right? It's not, yes, yes, it's Bob Dylan, but he's, again, he's still just a musician. Yes, it's George Harrison, but he still just enjoys playing his ukulele with Tom Petty, you know? Yeah. So I know I love that about him. Um, and on to that, so just very quickly then, yeah, just wanted to talk about sort of in terms of music and as a musician yourself, do you think that, What's the sort of this? What would you define as the signature sound of the Heartbreakers? What what makes a Heartbreaker song that makes it different to other bands? Like you said, like E Street Band, you could have the E Street Band could play, I don't know, The Waiting, and it wouldn't have the same groove to it. You could have, um, I don't know, Billy Joel could play Room at the Top, maybe, but it wouldn't have You're the really same soul. Me. Okay, <laughs> right, but you see what I'm going with, though. Where I'm going with that, though, like big names who people really respect, yeah. but they don't yeah. have that same. But there's something about the heartbreakers. It's not just Tom's voice. There's something about the way Mike and Tom play together. There's something yes. about the way the the drums and the bass fit in around that. And then there's something about the way that Benmont knows exactly when to really mm-hmm. into that Leslie or when to back right off and do nothing. Mm-hmm. So is that as much as it is just that sort of understanding, or yeah. do you think something? Yeah. Okay, you answer the question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Look, you know, there are there's a certain alchemy in the way those guys play together where. um, So so here's here's a good example. When. So when Stan left, I was very sad. Yeah. And and Ben and I have talked about this. He's a huge he loves Stan, and still to this day, rues the day that that you know, that, that, that relationship broke down. Yeah. And 
I kind of equated Ferroni with being kind of a session cat. You know, I knew his history, but like, you know, he did Clapton and Ziggy Marley and, yep. you know, a lot of average white band, obviously, but, you know, but he was a, he was a cat. And I, and I, and he had a very session guy sound okay. on record. And so when, when we did the, when we did the show at the El Rey uh, on Tom's birthday, a couple of years ago, I was standing in front of Ron on bass and Ferroni on drums. And yep. I, I'll tell you two things. First of all, he's like a freight train behind you and if you're tom you gotta love that yeah i mean you got you gotta love that he also has that role that we were talking about earlier that you know it would be hard to find i mean if if they had used dave Grohl, he didn't he doesn't have that role no he doesn't i, I and i'm you a know? huge i'm a huge i'm, just, I'm gonna jump sure. in there i'm a huge free fighters fan i've seen him four times sure. i love and i love dave Grohl. 100% not the right drummer for the for the not at all. absolutely not, not. not we're for we're for owning do you think with steve then like you're talking about with that role but, and but even... my point my point okay, was sorry, yeah, go ahead. just those two guys yeah it sounded like the heartbreakers i remember when oh, okay. we were in rehearsal and they were just kind of playing together and it it sounded like the heartbreakers yeah. you know it was like slick and i were were playing there was a, a tune we were in front of keltner and, you know, <laughs> the minute he starts playing, it's very rare that a drummer sounds like a person, you know? Yeah. But it sounded like Jim Keller. It sounded yeah. like the Wilburys, you yeah. know? We were playing You Got It, and it sounded like You Got It because he played the fucking drums on You Got It. <laughs> so, you know, it was like, you know, th there is a certain magic to those people when you put them together. Yeah. That's the special sauce. Well, and getting to, again, I've talked to Jake Thistle about this. He said the same thing, like getting, just kind of looking over your shoulder and seeing Jim Keltner behind you. That's got to be a trip, man. That's just got to be a really weird, odd moment. So like, oh. That's yeah, I mean, I played, with, I played with a lot of people, a lot yeah. of really special people. You wouldn't think it would be, you know, I played Won't Get Fooled Again with Pete Townsend. It doesn't get. What? And I played, and I played. And whoa, I whoa, played, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's not gloss over that. Wait, and I played <laughs> Knocking on Heaven's Door with McGuinn. So wow. it's very hard to beat those moments. And yet playing with Keltner was a real, real highlight. Yeah. Yes, I did. Would, would be for me too. I mean, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm a hobbyist drummer myself. So, and again, you know, I, I love Dave Grohl and I love, I love, you know, Bonham. And of course you, you, you want to, those big, powerful rock drummers, but it's when you try to play Steve Ferroni's lick from, um, at Fault Lines, you try to oh, play yeah. that, you play that little Boston Nova lick he's playing on the ride. Which we played with him. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's crazy. And Keltner and these guys who, because they're session musicians, they're not just straight ahead rock drummers and they have that role. They have that thing Ron, where they, it was they funny can swing Ron it. Ron put that on the set list. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, this is going to be a train wreck. There's no way we're doing that. <laughs> and right away at, at rehearsal, it sounded great. And you're right. It was the glue was Ferroni. Yeah. Such a good, and it's one of those things that again, a rock drummer doesn't put that in. They don't put that little triplet on the ride. They just, they just don't, right? And it's got that right. Sam Boston Aubrey kind of feel to it. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, you know what I'm going to do, Mister Slate, is I'm going to throw um, ten quick fire questions at you, and they're quick fire yeah. in the sense of they're quick questions. There's not a lot of depth to questions, and there are a lot mm -hmm. of yes and no. But if they spin out into longer answers, that's fine too. Okay. All right, so it's the worst question for any fan of any, you know, it's like saying, what's your favorite Dylan album? What's your favorite kid? What's your favorite, you know, 
Do you have a favorite? If you had to pick one, what's your favorite Tom Petty album or Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers? Gun to Ooh. your head. Um, I'm going to say Traveling Wilburys Volume 3. Oh, okay. And Volume 2. Or three, yeah. sorry. Three, right? Three. So, yeah, but wow, okay. Interesting. So that's yeah. cool, cool, dry places on that, though, too, right? Yeah. Cool, dry places on that. I feel like fun. because Roy wasn't there and because Bob had to leave early, you know, he basically did all his parts and then left yeah. because he was on tour. It was left to the three of them to finish it. And I feel like Tom's presence, because, you know, Jeff and, and George were sort of the producers, so it's easier to have the other guy do. I feel like his imprint is really there. Totally agree. Yeah. And um, and it's not something I've heard a bajillion times. Awesome. No, oh, that's a great answer. And, and every and any album that that starts off with "She's My Baby" is okay. Yes. yes. Great man. <laughs> Talk about great lyrics. I mean, so. I was going to say "Wildflowers," but it's like and and you know what? I, I conversely, I was going to say "Echo." Yeah. Which I think is a hugely underrated record, which I know Tom hated. Yeah. But it it does have its. It did fall prey to the seventy minute album thing, and yeah. it and it does you know, it would have been better as like 50 minutes. And, and so I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. So good. Awesome. Okay. And I think I probably can guess then the the answer to the question too, is Mudcrutch or Traveling Wilburys? You know, I never saw (laughs) the Traveling Wilburys. So, um, well, no one did. They never toured. So (laughs) yeah, I know. So I I, I saw Mudcrutch quite a few times and, and got to hang out with them a lot. So it was, I was back, as you probably have figured out, I was backstage when they rehearsed with McGuinn. That was like, <laughs> I'm just glad there was a photo because people wouldn't believe it. Um, I'm going to say the Wilburys yeah. because it's the fucking Wilburys. <laughs> <laughs> when you get five for one, right? You get five great eyes yeah. for one. Well, one. look, when, when I, because I wrote the, the biography of Roy for his family and that part of the book was probably my favorite part to work on. Yeah. You know, I got to fact check some stuff with Jeff Lynn and, and Tom and it was and I, 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 it came out after Tom was gone, but I remember sending a copy to Dana and to Tony and they were both really, really into it. We're like, oh, he would love this, you know. What's the book? I don't think I've seen that one. The Authorized Roy Orbison. Oh, I'm going to have to look that up then. I'll get to pick that up for sure. You do. Look that up. So if you could join the Heartbreakers well, in any era, any era of Heartbreakers, um, you could join the Heartbreakers on stage for one song. What would it be? And would you play and or sing? So we're going back uh, in time. Mary- everyone's, everyone's still alive. Yeah. Mary Jane. Ah, okay. Um, uh, I mean, with Stan. Yeah. <laughs> no offense, because I played it with Steve. <laughs> uh, so, so that's already, that box is already checked. With, with absolutely with Stan and Howie. And no offense to Ron, who I also played the song with. Um, and I absolutely, I play the fucking guitar and sing. I, I, we do the thing, you know. I mean, there'd be a whole. And there's a natural harmony line for the parts you're not singing. So it's yeah. like, I'm I'm all over it. Yeah. So you take you take the harmonies then? You sing the back, or would you would you sing lead and let yeah, Tom we sing split back? split it up. <laughs> okay. Very magnanimous. <laughs> okay, what would who, hey, sorry? The song, you know, who would be? Any of your albums you've seen Tom a lot of times opening, who would be your dream opening act at a Tom Petty concert? Who would be the best person to open with the Heartbreakers? Maybe who who you saw, or maybe who never did but should have done. Hmm. Probably Roy. Oh no, that'd be cool, eh? Right. They could br- bring him out for a couple of Wilbury tunes. Yeah, that'd be pretty yeah. wicked. Yeah, 
Roy, Roy looms large in my, I mean, that was how I got the job writing the book. I got to know his sons, particularly Alex. Ah, okay. And, and he knew I was like, to, to find a guy my age who's like <laughs> a really true blue Roy Orbison fan, yeah. who's also a rock writer, um, who, you know, they also got along with and they yeah. can trust with the project. I think, you know, I was sort of a needle in a haystack because I fucking love Roy, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I, again, I grew up with him and I, I always just thought that, well, everyone loves Roy Orbison. And then you find out when you're a bit older that some people never even really heard of him. And everyone knows Pretty Woman, but they don't know who, you know what I mean? Like a certainly yeah. younger generation. So again, exposing my kids to that stuff as well. And then explaining yeah. to my daughter that, you know, Roy Orbison wrote songs very differently to a lot of other people. Some of them had no chorus. Some of them had two right. bridges. Some of them were B, A, B, 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 C. Like it was just, he wrote whatever he felt. And people forget that. People think he's just a pretty woman guy, right? You know, which is a great yeah. song, but. He broke all the rules of songwriting. Absolutely. In very fun, interesting ways. And everyone should do that. And I can't, I try, but I, I can't do it. <laughs> most of my, my most of my sister. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was a keyboard player first. I only started playing boom, eight years tap, ago. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> okay. Number five. Okay, who's your favorite band member other than Tom? And I think I probably know this one as well. So, from the way you've spoken about him, they're all so. <laughs> I know these are horrible so questions. <laughs> it is. I'm going to say Ben because he might see this. <laughs> no. You know, and I, I think you're right. You talked about how Ben elevates the song from just being like a rock and roll tune. Yeah. The special. I mean, you know, no disrespect to Mike, and he may see this too, God knows. Uh, and I love him to bits. And he's one of the truly underrated, great, great, great rock and roll guitar players because he elevates every song he plays on. Yeah. He has a part, it's thought out. He's from that George Harrison school. You can hum his solos. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how many people can you say that about, right? Yeah. But if they didn't have Benmont, they would just be kind of, rock and roll records yeah he's the person who elevates them and makes them you know heartbreakers records you know yeah. that that gives it that special sauce do you think that i, I looking back and going through because I'm, I'm on hard promises now so we've I've reviewed the first three albums and there's a distinct shift when you get to damn the torpedoes where it's almost like jimmy iovine says why is that guy not hiring the mix on these records he's part of your sound on stage so it's almost like it's a palpable, yeah, no, we need that guy front and center on a lot more of this stuff because it adds so much more width to it. So I don't know if you've ever talked to Ben Mons about that because that's, that's an interesting idea. To, I wonder if that was actually the I case. Never, or I never just... really have it. And it's weird because I, I, I interviewed him right. um, when, when the wildflowers died. I mean, that's weird. I, we, you know, I, I interviewed, interviewing a friend is always strange, <laughs> but I, I interviewed him about the wildflowers documentary and we took a we took a left turn into the catalog and he just went through album by album yeah giving me his opinion on each of the albums and i'm like i gotta use that someday somewhere yeah. but it was like oh i guess this is what we're doing because there was no time it wasn't like a regular interview there's no timeline we were just talking yeah and and um i i'll have to go back and and get yeah. back to you on that i'm sure he's aware that the sounds, you know, look, they became a band in that two and a half years. 100%, yeah. So, so you know, whether that was Iovine elevating him or it was just the way things were evolving within okay. the unit. So, 
It's so stark, though. It's such, like I said, it's such a contrast. It, between, it really is. I mean, it's very, very. Well, noticeable. the sound, the sound of the third record is completely different. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like they went. You know, they went from, you know, almost like demo sounding records to like big rumor sounding records. Yeah. You know. Well, having, a, having an engaged producer, because those first two records, I mean, Denny Cordell wasn't really there some of the times. You know, you've got the engineers doing some of the stuff and all that's going on and they're going into on the studios. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, of course, now you get Jimmy Iovine with his relentless work ethic comes in and de- yeah. becomes demanding. Of course, that's going to change it and change it for the better. So, okay, your next question. Walls Circus or Walls number three? Circus. Really? You know, it's funny. I wrote that question and... It, I thought that almost everyone would say number three because that's my favorite version because it's the very acoustic stripped down and almost everyone said circus, almost everyone. So what? What you? It's got Lindsey it? Buckingham doing the backing vocals. Fair enough. Yeah. It, it rocks and swings. It's <laughs> it's a really cool pop record. I don't think it it holds up like I was obsessed with it when that record came out, and I don't think it holds up as well. And we all have a little bit of allegiance to the stripped down version because now that he's gone. I mean, yeah. I've played that, you know, live yeah. many, many, many times. And it, you know, there's like nary a dry eye. Yes. Because yeah. we, we hear it differently now. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a hard choice, but Circus yeah. is just great. It's, a, it's like the last of those great pop rock records, like uh, yeah. those AM friendly records. Yeah. Nobody makes, nobody makes songs like, it's a rock and roll band playing a pop tune. You know, you don't get that anymore. You've got like sort of Katy Perry and Kanye and this other kind yep. of thing going. So. Even the it. you know, even the even the bands who are considered sort of poppy, you know, Killers or Panic at the Disco or yep. Foo Fighters or whatever, they're not making like Circus could have been on the charts in '65. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, totally agree. I totally agree, and I mean. What I, I remember, I was fairly late to that song for some reason. I think one of the things was I didn't listen to She's the One because it, it had the word soundtrack in it. So yeah. I, for some reason, I thought that, oh, well, that's probably just like three You and everybody t- else, yeah. Yeah, I probably thought it's about two or three Tom Petty songs and then a bunch of instrumental Michael Kamen stuff, right? And then came back to it and heard that song and that opening line, Some Days Are Diamonds, Some Days Are Rocks. Well, straight away, I'm like, well, you've got me there. You know what? One thing we didn't say, which I really want to say is Tom is the master of the first line. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I'll go with you. She's an American yeah. girl raised on promises. <laughs> Holy shit. You don't need to do anything else after that. Yeah. I get to see, see those fault lines laid out like landmines. Like, again, no one writes that. No one else writes. I mean, Dylan had that same turn of phrase where he just brings something to you that was completely. Yeah, but, out he's of left never, field, he but he was never focused on the first line the way yeah. Tom was focused on the yeah. first line. Yeah. Dylan, Dylan, Dylan will write 20 verses and narrow it down to four or five. <laughs> and it's just the arc of the story that he wants to tell. But Tom was like, he's going to get you. Yeah. Well, your next question is, if you could pick any artist to cover any Tom Petty song, who would it be and what song would they cover? This has thrown up some really good answers so far. That's good. That's a good question. Um, maybe Regina Spector or... Rina Sawayama or somebody like that sort of like okay. rein, reinvent it. Yeah. 100%. Completely. Yeah, absolutely. Take it, take it down to the bare bones and then build it back up again. Definitely. Any, song, any, see, any songs that you can think of offhand that would be cool to do Because I'd with? like to hear them because I'd like to hear maybe like Room at the Top. Something that feels maybe a little unfinished or or could be reworked and be completely different. 
okay. you know um yeah i mean it, it's really hard because <laughs> those songs are you know it's almost sacrilege to do them in a different way yeah you know when you do them it's like when jacob dylan does the waiting you just play the waiting or when jackson yeah. does the waiting you just play the waiting when we do them you know we're, we're not like we've never done sort of the note for note thing we don't you know yep. we just kind of plan the way we play them but the songs are the songs i mean they 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 are what they are yeah the parts are the parts you want to honor those um but i think it would be and it, you know his catalog as we get further and further away from his lifetime it's a living and breathing thing that i think will be you know it will be divorced from the heartbreakers in the records yep okay you know Talk, talk, just, just a quick note on that, though, and someone you've mentioned earlier, and again, who I've spoken to, and I'm a great admirer of, Jake Thistle. I think he's one of the very few people who I do think does a good job of taking the songs, keeping the sort of the spirit of them, but putting his own personality into them, too. So, like, he'll play Room at the Top and he'll do it all on piano. Or he'll do, yeah. you know, he'll, he'll change it up just that little bit. And I think he's got, but he knows where the heart of the song is. And he never yeah. strays too far yeah. away from that, right? So you can do it. I've, it's I've, just I've, difficult. I've played, I've played with him many times. I, yeah. I count Jake as a friend. I really like him as a guy. We did a songwriters thing not that long. Oh no, he he was in the round robin before me. But anyway, yeah, a really uh, you know a huge talent and a yes. great guy and like a real fan, a real fan. Yeah, which is yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got huge hopes for him. He's one of those. He's like, please let him break through. Please let and not get broken by the industry. I don't want the next Ed Sheeran. I know what Ed Sheeran can do. I want Jake Thistle sounding the way Jake Thistle sounds to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, what song do you most frequently recommend to people who don't know Tom's music? If someone says, well, I don't really know any Tom Petty, what should I listen to? What's, the, what's your go-to? Nobody says that. I mean, nobody really says that in 2022. <laughs> it's a hypothetical. <laughs> okay. Um, I think the song that's all things to all people is I Won't Back Down. I open almost every acoustic show I do with I Won't Back Down. Yeah. Because it, even people who haven't heard it in 20 years, it gets them right away. Yeah. You, I was going to ask about, I think I've written that down somewhere even actually. I've talked to a few people like this and Tom Petty's one of the very few artists for me who, you know, things get overplayed on radio. American Girl, I've heard that song a million times. I don't listen to Bohemian Rhapsody anymore because I love it, but I've heard it and it's in there. I don't listen to Stay Away anymore because it's in there, I know it. But American Girl comes on, I'm going to listen to it every time. Because I I, it's just, there's something, again, well, something just Well, it doesn't different. overstay its welcome though. The thing about those True. records is both of them are, I was just having this, conversation with my um the guy who's mixing my new record which ha which features ron blair on it um oh, nice. uh i we were making some edits and he goes oh i see we're making the songs longer <laughs> 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 and you know that is a trap the thing yeah. the thing that tom was always really good at doing was being a judicious editor i mean those yeah. songs Amer American Girl is less than three minutes. Uh, I won't back down. It's probably three minutes. Yeah, there's you know, no, there's probably... no, no fat on those records, right? There's abs no anything that can be taken out that you don't need, get rid of it. And there yeah. are things you would do naturally in the intro. You would, you would think you would play the verse in the intro, but it's just the two passes. Yeah, and you go right into it. You know, yeah. it's just like anyway. Yeah, super, super cool. All right. So your last how, question. How many more? Just oh, one, one, one more in the quick fire. Yeah, we're already done the quick fire. So describe Tom Petty in three words. Stubborn. <laughs> right um genius and 
cantankerous. Excellent. And there's a, there's a funny thing. None where... of those things, by the way, for the people who are like, I can't call them cantankerous. I see that as a badge of honor. <laughs> and I, and yes, yeah, stubborn's not necessarily a negative. Stubborn no. can just mean strong-willed. It's, this, it's synonymous with yeah. strong-willed, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, we should, uh, we've been two hours and I feel like we could probably talk for another two and maybe what I'll have to do is get you back on sometime and we'll talk some more about it. I'd love to. Well, my, my record will be coming out at some point in the probably early next year so that that'll be enough of a gap that we'll have things to talk about. Perfect. Okay, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to wrap up here, but I want to just throw over quickly, and I know that you are touring constantly or gigging constantly at least, and you have a new record coming out. You've got a new single that just dropped not that long ago, right? And people can find that on Apple and Spotify. What should people look out for um, when the thing's coming up and where can they find you online? If you're in New York City, we're doing a Rolling Stone 60th anniversary show in August. Uh, we'll be doing our Tom Petty birthday shows in October, both in New York City and D.C. Um, and I, like you said, uh, my version of Ronnie Lane's The Poacher, where I poached mostly Paul Weller's band uh, <laughs> to play on um is out and there'll be more singles and a new record uh called last days of summer hopefully you know part of it is i would have had it out already but part of it is the supply chain you can't get vinyl it looks like maybe march or april but i think i'm going to be in the uk in november to do some promo and then we'll be doing a proper tour tour all over the place in um march april may throughout the summer next year I already know 2023. It's crazy. Fantastic. And if you're ever up this way, if you're ever close enough that I can swing by and get a, get a gig, you're in Al- you probably won't be coming to Saskatchewan, but if you're ever in Alberta, Edmonton or Calgary, I'll head out and I'll come it's say hi. Beautiful up there. I, I hope we can. We'll come in the more <laughs> inclement, <laughs> less inclement yes. weather. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I love the travel of the road. I'm not a traveler by nature, but I like being on the road. Yeah. It's weird. That's a weird thing. Musicians. I'd rather be in the house, but I'd rather, <laughs> you know, but, but if you give me, I have a bag, Pat, I literally, I have a go bag. <laughs> and if you said, I need you to do a gig in DC tonight, I, I could be on a, you're out the door. I'm out the door. That's funny. That's, but that's the life of a, you know, of a itinerant musician. So, yeah. Yeah. I was just, I was and just and if people want to keep if people want to keep up um, on social media, Jeff Slate on Twitter and Instagram, Jeff Slate HQ on Facebook and Jeff Slate HQ dot com on uh, the interwebs. And I will put in links to those for you in the episode interwebs. notes. Ah, we're old. We can say interwebs now and people. It's just charming now, right? When we say that. So. No, it's not. Dad jokes. Dad jokes. Okay. Hey, thanks so much, Jeff. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege uh, meeting to you and chatting to you. And again, I hope at some point we'll get back on and do another one or I hopefully see you in person. Yeah, this time I really we should wanna... talk about Tom Petty, but okay. Well, we've got enough. And I can, I can, like I said, I can no. do some editing there. We, there's enough in there, I think. So it's good. But I think I always think that like talking to people about where they come from is it's important to learn about who someone is to understand why they love Tom Petty so much or what, how it, it sort of frames that relationship with the music, right? I always think like my daughter um, is 15 now and two years ago she came to us to my wife and I and said oh, I want a, I want a, a record player for Christmas out of the blue like no we don't I don't I didn't have one at that point I had, I had some vinyl kicking around but and obviously my vinyl on my walls but and so she said oh, I want this record player I'm like okay 
So we got this record, but she had no records. And she bought herself um, the soundtrack to the Bohemian Rhapsody was the first one she bought, the, the movie. And then she bought her second album that she ever bought was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' Greatest Hits. And then the third album she ever bought was Abbey Road. So I was like, you know what? Uh-huh. I think, you I think okay. I've done okay here. I think I've done a reasonable job uh-huh. of, yeah, so... Yeah. She's my little rock and roller. So I think I think the thing about Tom Petty that spoke to me as a young guy starting out, who clearly was t- going to take a path, you know that that wasn't quote unquote normal, was that he had a real like all the other people that we talked about over the last two hours. He had a real fuck you attitude. Yeah, hundred you know, percent. This, this is he had he he had an opinion. He knew he was right. And he was going to follow that to its logical conclusion, win, lose, or draw. And I identified with that. You know, I thought that was something, you know, if I can't aspire to be as great a songwriter as him, I think, you know, to be true to yourself and follow whatever it is you believe in to the, the, you know, obvious conclusion, that's the way to live your life. 